Welcome to the Natural Capital Podcast, produced as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. My name is Rachel Smiley and in this series we explore different natural capital assets and their value to Scottish agriculture and the rural economy and the pressures and threats they face. We speak to people, groups and experts helping to manage, protect and restore these resources, ecosystems and habitats. This is our final episode of 2023. So far in the series, we have covered a lot of natural capital topics, including the valuable habitats to wildlife and importance of different natural capital assets to farms and communities. In this episode, we are speaking to Ollie Mackay at Rothy Marcus Estate in the Cairngorms National Park about the estate's natural capital assets. We are initially talking about the provisioning services supplied by natural capital assets. Provisioning services include the production of the food we eat, the drinks we consume and also the products such as timber, plant-based fuels and medicines. However, since Christmas is around the corner, there's a slight sustainable festive focus. Welcome to the Natural Capital Podcast, Ollie. Do you want to just start by giving us an introduction to yourself and the estate? My name's Ollie Mackay. I work for you for Rothy Mercs Estate. I work as the head ranger here and so that's quite a varied role. It's basically looking after uh, um, Rothy Mercus as a 17,500 acre estate. We're very much sort of a, a diversified sort of modern estate, if, if, if you'd like to call it that. Um, so we've got coming into, as a, as a very sort of long story short, coming to sort of the 1960s and 1970s. Before that, we were a very traditional Highland estate, sort of salmon fishing, deer stalking, agriculture, that sort of stuff. Prior to the sort of, or coming into the 1970s, that's when the skiing in the area started to kick off, but sort of Cairngorm Mountain. And that's when we started to see a huge influx of visitors to the area. Um, and so as from the sort of 1970s period, that's when we sort of start to diversify. Um, and that was for sort of two main reasons. So we've got sort of, um, obviously to help manage the tourist uh, pressure um, that we're seeing and also make an income. So as an estate, we run a good few businesses ourselves. So we've still got the farm, we've got the farm shop, got a, a cafe, uh, fishery, clay shoot, campground, um, and a few other bits and pieces going on, holiday cottages. And then we work with third partner businesses as well. Um, so these guys, they've got, got, uh, got their own businesses. And I think we work with maybe between five and seven partner businesses, but uh, it's anything from horse riding to falconry to archery to water sports to, yeah, you, you name it, we've probably got it activity-wise. And so that's basically how sort of Rothy Mercus is nowadays. It's really catering to sort of the visitor um, that's coming to us. And yeah, that that's kind of the at the forefront of I'd pr- probably say our, uh, our our main sort of focus on the income stream, and then sort of taking a bit of a, a back step, if you like, on what else is going on behind the scenes. So we've got a lot of in that seventeen and a half thousand acres, we've got a lot of um, Caledonian pine forest or ancient Caledonian pine forest. So there's all the conservation side of things going on there. There's the farm that covers a, a lot of ground, and then there's various uh, locks, rivers, mountains that sort of make up the rest of that ground as well. Uh, as, as a very quick sum up, that's sort of kind of what we are nowadays. We're very much a vis- visitor-focused estate um, and we're very fortunate to be right next door to Aviemore. I say fortunate, sort of in, in some respects, it makes us very busy and very popular, but in other respects, obviously, it's where it's where we can sort of generate an income and where we're sort of lucky enough that other um, estates don't quite have that same sort of sort of resource, if you like. So yeah, we see see a lot of visitors coming through and that can be anything from just day visitors coming through cycling, walking, doing all that kind of stuff to people coming up here to spending a few weeks on, on holidays. In a nutshell, sort of Rothy Mercus. And so my role as the head ranger 
again, very, very visitor focused. Um, so we do a lot of um, tours of the estate. So that's obviously the farm, see sort of uh, viewpoints and stuff like that. And then there's the other side of things, the less glamorous side of things of tidying up after certain visitors that sort of uh, like campfires and go to the toilet in strange places or two obvious places, I, I might add, and all the other kind of sort of like ranger and roll that you've got there, sort of your litter picking, sort of engaging with visitors that have sort of got dogs chasing wildlife and all that kind of thing. Um, and then sort of my other part of my job is I sort of look after the fishery as well. So huge fan of fishing and I, I could probably talk to you about that for the next hour if, <laughs> if you wanted. But yeah, that's sort of the, the other part of my role. So we've got a small fishery and that's just stocked with sort of rainbow trout and it's sort of, we've got everything from beginners bait fishing to sort of more experienced fly fishing and then a little bit of the river for sort of uh, trout fishing as well. There's a lot going on and it sounds like a huge estate. What does your like typical day involve or is it kind of varied from day to day? Very, very, very varied. I'd say a typical day varies seasonally. Uh, quite fortunately, our tourist season is really kicking off April to October now. So we've got quite a lot of um, repeat sort of um, coach companies that we work with. Um, and so these guys book dates through the whole season with us. So you might get, I don't know, 20 dates off a, off a, off a coach company. And these guys are coming up to Scotland or the, the over to the UK from the US or wherever. And it's like a fixed itinerary. So every coach tour does the same, same loop of wherever they go. And like a morning might be with us. So that's really our sort of primary focus in the sort of that April to October uh, months. That can be on a, on a normal sort of summer's day, you can sort of come in. We've got a toilet facility down at a place called Loch Anilin. And yeah, the phrase I'll use there is well used. That'll, hopefully that's graphic enough for you. But yeah, that's sort of when, when I first started here, that was uh, a, a very much an eye opener to the world of um, <laughs> probably better stop myself, but bodily fluids and <laughs> where, where they shouldn't be, definitely. And so, yeah, that's sort of go down there, give that a clean up and a, and a restock, um, maybe sort of a quick litter pick round Loch Anilin and get back to the sort of centre and sort of open up any gates and um, again, sort of empty any bins and litter pick round there. And then after that, it's, yeah, really can be anything. So it can be anything from sort of the estate Land Rover tours the, to, uh, and sort of, uh, you're not allowed to laugh at this bit, but what we call a hairy coup safari to see, go see the Highland cattle and sort of have got to feed the deer trip. So that's sort of things to be booked for, uh, by anybody um, off the street, um, sort of you just your general day visitor. And then that can also incorporate into the sort of coach side of things that we already know we've got coming in. And then we've got a variety of range jobs on the side of that. So um, whether it's sort of what we call patrols, so just uh, walking on foot of, of, of the core paths, clearing up litter and any other messes that we come across um, and engaging with folk. Through the evenings, we're sort of getting out sort of July and August and sort of around high fire season, um, engaging with uh, wild campers that are lighting fires and up to no good there. And so that's sort of really taking the bulk of our summer season. And then when you get around to sort of the winter, and I say quiet time, it never feels quiet, it, but it's, it's catching up on all the, all the jobs that we've missed over the summer. So it might be, um, so for example, we were, uh, we were building a fence um, in, the, in the fishery, just sort of as a bit of a safety thing the other week. We're sort of getting benches uh, uh, in sheds and stuff for the winter, repairing boats that we've got. Sort of, I think if they were left another season, they'd be sinking, so, <laughs> possibly. Trying to get vehicles MOT'd and maintenanced and all that kind of stuff. And then sort of planning projects and jobs. So we've got our recent projects that we've got on the go. Um, so there's the Beaver release that's going to be happening in Strathbay uh, in the Cairngorms. Um, so we've been working with that, although that's national park led, um, uh, it's sort of in, involved in uh, involving us as a landowner. So we're sort of liaising on things like that. 
there's every now and again some sort of grant funding will become available that we can sort of upgrade some of our paths. Um, So when we're talking about path resurfacing, we'd be sort of angling at that all access, all abilities. So everything from your your standard uh, bike and walker to pushchair and wheelchair type thing. When that comes available, we'll uh, sort of jump on that um, because that sort of really does benefit us and our visitors. And then, yeah, painting signs, um, making signs. Um, at the minute, we're looking at all our, this This isn't a project I'm leading, I'm just sort of uh, on, on the side of, but we're looking at all our way marking around the estate and sort of trying to help our visitors navigate and sort of improve the general overall experience there. And the idea behind that is if people are coming here and everything's easy for them in uh, quotation marks, hopefully they sort of behave better in the sense of uh, they don't drop litter, they uh, they might just sort of think about putting the dog on the lead. If their overall experience is good when they're here, hopefully that sort of, yeah, uh, is taken out outside when the, when no, nobody's around and we hopefully don't have to go tidy up messes and other such stuff. Gates get closed, for example, and stuff like that. So the general ethos that we have behind that, if you go somewhere and it's covered in litter, you're more likely to drop litter yourself. But whereas if you go somewhere that looks cared for, looks looks uh, well looked after, then hopefully they'll sort of reciprocate that. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the general sort of overall rule or th- rule, if you like, that we've got on the go through through most of the year. But it's getting that attention to detail back. So standards have slipped over the summer and it's getting that back up again. So potholes in car parks is another one, stuff like that. So anything and everything. How many rangers are there for doing all this work? We're, we're quite fortunate that we've got um, a good maintenance team here. Um, so for me, I, there's myself that's a full-time ranger and I've got a, a lady called Shona that's also a full-time ranger. We've got one young girl called Christine that's helping us out. So she was our seasonal ranger and then she's sort of staying up here for the for the winter. So she's uh, working between a few other departments for the winter and sort of, yeah, so she's helping us out for a few days. And then when we get back to the summer period... It's sort of a bit of a jigsaw piece puzzle of getting staff together, but it's sort of between six, seven or eight full-time, part-time and seasonal workers um, that sort of get us to that. But yeah, we've got a maintenance team as well. So they take on a lot of the bigger jobs. Um, So if it's sort of holiday cottages in the summer, they're doing a lot of the grass cutting. If it's sort of chopping down trees, um, big, big stuff, they're they're also tackling that as well. That that sort of really helps uh, out as well because they do do a lot of the the big stuff and then we come through and... uh, when it comes to like uh, a lot of the paths, we will trim all the branches on them, for example. And then if there's like big trees that we can't get, then they'll come and get them to type stuff. So I say there never seems to be enough staff, but <laughs> too, too many jobs and not enough staff. But I think that probably rings true for a lot of people as well. There's, there's a lot to do, but there's uh, a, a good few hands to help with, with doing it all. How much of this state is the Rothy Matcha Forest? Very good question. How big is it? So in that 17,500 acres, we're split between two patches. So we're about 7,500 acres as our low ground. The other 10,000 acres is our high ground. I'd be guessing something about between about four and 6,000 acres is forest, uh, possibly. So our high ground, to hopefully try and explain it in, in somewhat of an understandable way. So we go right the way up to Breyrick, um, which is your third highest mountain in the UK. So we've got a lot of, obviously, mountainous uh, habitat and landscape and there's a lot of that ground that's sort of still uh, regenerating so if you go up there it's been very traditionally managed for sort of grouse shooting deer stalking that sort of thing we do have sort of trees uh, out that way but not very much in a forest so they're sort of steadily regenerating and they're probably all kind of uh, yeah bonsai style uh, about uh, 
probably about a foot or two tall coming through the heather. Um, so there's a, a lot of ground up there that's sort of in a regeneration stage or is just sort of a bit too harsh and rugged to have forest on. And then as you get down to the lower ground, that's where we're sort of mixed between farmland and forestry. Um, so I guess I'd probably say between about four and about 6,000 acres, give or take. And then that's sort of shared between forestry and land Scotland and a few other landowners that have sort of got that sort of whole expanse of the Caledonian pine forest, Rothiumercus forest, that type of stuff. There's a reason that you're our December episodes because we wanted to talk about your Christmas tree initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so the Christmas tree initiative came from a good few years back um, and it's not something we've been able to sort of hold on to every year. As, as I sort of mentioned earlier with us sort of cutting back um, branches and stuff off the, the footpaths. So to give you sort of a, 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 a quick story of the regeneration side of things, back to the 1970s, that's when the sort of regeneration of this landscape in the forest was sort of really starting to, to take hold. So we took a lot of our cattle and sheep out of those areas, started to get on top of the, the deer population. Now, if you sort of to go walking around Rothiumercus or sort of our neighbouring ground, you'll see loads and loads of saplings and trees springing through. And so while that's great for the forest, um, as you can imagine, you do get a lot of trees coming through in places that you don't want. And so particularly on the footpaths, we get a lot of, uh, a lot of trees and branches growing in on the sides of theirs. So it was a bit of a, a bit of an idea that we're cutting these trees out anyway. Uh, why not sort of at least try and sell them for, for a little bit as a, as, a, as, a, as a wonky Christmas tree? We did find out through, uh, it wasn't a particularly negative feedback, but certain people's idea of wonky is, I think, still sort of nice and pretty. Um, <laughs> some wonky ones maybe shouldn't have ended up in where they did but yeah so it was a case of anything maybe within like a meter meter and a half of the footpath we might as well take it about three to five foot tall because it's only going to become a problem in 10-15 years time so yeah that's sort of where that sprang about and I don't know how much uh, sort of core path network we've got on the estate but it's probably somewhere in the realms of 15 to 20 miles something like that so you can imagine there's a lot of areas that we've got where you can uh yeah we've got lots of tree uh, scots pines growing in um that we can take out and then every now and again when we get the odd non-native like a norwegian spruce or something growing in the mix we can also chop that down so we didn't manage to do it this year and i don't think we did it last year where we're coming across some of these wonky christmas trees if you like we're sort of earmarking them and saving them so that we hopefully next year we'll have a, a, a stock of them again to sort of start producing and I think from a customer side of things, our our visitors and sort of our locals, um, I think really like the idea of having a, a bit of a a bit of the forest in the home. Of you've got you've got a tree with a story. It might not look pretty, but it's it's come from the forest. It's it's got a use. It's it's been cut down and it's not been wasted. At least it's been used as a, as a Christmas tree. And so yeah, that's that's sort of where the idea came from. Definitely. If I was having one of those trees, it would be the wonkier, the better. Character's the word, yeah. It's a story to tell if it's only got branches on half of it. <laughs> Please don't look at trees and think they're wonky and go and start cutting them. <laughs> yeah, so as in, um, for us, it's yeah, not every landowner has trees growing on, on paths and and wants to get rid of them. So some do want them. But yeah, for us, we uh, our, our sort of general management of our paths is that we want to get our estate vehicles down them in the most part of it. We want to be able to get fire engines and mountain rescue and that kind of those kind of appliances down. And then we've got to keep them wide enough for, for bikes and horses and sort of two-way traffic, if you like. We take them out sort of about a metre, metre and a half off the path. But yeah, definitely not every land. I don't think every landowner would be grateful if uh, this sort of folk just started willy-nilly cutting down Christmas trees uh, just because they look like a Christmas tree and they might be in the way. 
for us, it's kind of uh, we, we, we want rid of them. Um, and so we'll go and do it. And we'll often work with the volunteer program. So, yeah, that's sort of uh, another really good asset that we that we can sort of use. And so we sort of do that maybe November, December, when we get sort of it's clear weather, it's not raining, which is very rare. Um, but yeah, get, get some clear weather and get out and doing that. But that's not a rule of thumb for every landowner that they want Christmas trees cutting down. <laughs> some some of them might be part of forestry plantations as well. They won't be too grateful for either. <laughs> We've recently had done an episode on a Gaelic episode. And I've seen that the Rothy Marcus estate has a motto. What is the motto? I can't pronounce it. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you to pronounce it. Translates to our place, our people, our livestock, our forest, our visitors. So that sort of is a kind of an overall sort of sum up of that. Rothy Marcus has been in the Grant family for about near enough coming up to 500 years. It's, it was with a family called the Shores before that. And I think we've got an area called the Dell Farm. And I think there's an area um, on the Dell Farm that's going back to sort of um, sort of almost like prehistoric times of having a settlement there. So there's always been people living here. And it's that kind of the, the, the one sort of common theme of probably all those years is the forest has been a resource. So whether it's been for, for food, so whether they've hunted in it, whether they've uh, obviously harvested it for for fuel or for for building and so it's really that sort of community i think and going back maybe 200 years maybe um rothy mercus was a, a center in itself so the, the the town next to us is abbeymore um and that's in in the grand scheme of things only a recent settlement if you like um you've got the train line there um, and if you to drive through Abbeymore, pretty much it's a, it's a long, thin um, development that everything, every, near enough every house has been built along the train line. So it's, uh, yeah, there's not much sort of width to it. But yeah, coming coming back to sort of Rothy Mercus, it's that sort of, I think it's overall, it's that value on the natural resources there. F- for me, you might have picked up already. Um, I'm not a native. I'm from a place called West Yorkshire originally. You still do get that sort of sense of community down there, um, but it's obviously much more populated and sort of you do lose a bit of that. But you come up here um, and you've still got these sort of small towns and villages that still sort of depend on each other. And I think that's where that sort of motto is coming from. Look after the forest and you'll have a life. You'll have something to sell. You'll have something to eat. You'll have something to keep you warm. And that's sort of always been the value for us. There's always been a respect of the forest because that's what it's that's what's produced the income. That's what's produced the, the livelihood. Um, probably coming into the more recent um, sort of centuries, you've had the deer stalk and the grouse shooting, again, providing a, a vital income for the place. So it's really that sort of uh, community. And I think that ownership of the place coming onto our sort of more recent strapline um, to that is, or what's sort of on our sort of website and um, a lot of our signs is that cared for generations love no love by generations cared for by you um a little bit cheesy but it's that it's putting that ownership onto onto people and again that helps us manage the place of if you come here um and you genuinely love the area and it sort of almost goes into that you could almost say spiritual nature of it and uh, I, I don't mean in the in a sort of a airy fairy sense but that sort of you can go to Loch and Elan and you can almost not see a soul and it's just so peaceful and relaxing and that that sort of side of things Going back to that that sort of uh, love by generations, it's that putting that care onto other people so that they they have a 
a strong feeling for it as well. And if they see some something like a, like a fire, for example, that's in the middle of the forest that somebody's lit, they'll come and tell us and then we can go and deal with it. Or if, if they see litter, they might even pick it up themselves because they have a, a strong sort of feeling of it. And th- this is ours. We want to look after it and keep it special. And sort of particularly for me coming into the area, I'd say there is there's so much special sort of qualities and features of this place sort of back home it's although it's sort of um i've sort of grown up between west yorkshire and sort of the yorkshire dales my grandparents you've got a lot of the ground is sort of managed land like kind of farmland grouse shooting land all that kind of stuff and there there is forestry but you get up here and you're into mountains and sort of wide expanses of forest that you just don't really see down in england um, and other parts of scotland um, and it's that, yeah, it's just that sort of wild nature of, of of the place that I think is sort of loved, basically. And that, that's why we're sort of so popular with our visitors and, and going back to the uh, our sort of, what was it, our our people, our or the, 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 the original strap line. I think that's sort of where that's come from. There's always been that value and respect of the, of the, of the place. And you, you've touched on it briefly, but is it hard to kind of find the right balance between the visitors and then the communities that are living there? Because you've mentioned, obviously, it's right next to Aviemore, and Aviemore just keeps growing and growing as a town. It's like from one year to another, it's not recognisable. It's you know, a lot of more visitors coming to this state, and is there any growing conflicts? Taking you back to the 1970, 19, uh, so 1976 was when our ranger service was put in. Uh, put in place and I think the first private ranger service in Scotland and so that's when we first started getting issues like that I suppose there has always been issues of some sort so we have had a, uh, a number of wildfires over the past hundred years um, through the forest so there's always been so- some sort of issue somewhere the national park estimates that they see about two million visitors a year we reckon we see about 350,000 and I'd say that's probably more now so they're quite outdated figures I reckon I'd, I'd say sort of pressure wise the the biggest one we have is your wild camping. I think the the one that sort of is not, not maybe not acceptable, but the the, the littering is is part of that. The, the biggest offenders are sweetie wrappers and tissues that are sort of obviously drop out of folks' pockets. But you have three hundred fifty thousand people coming here; it ends up being quite a lot. But yeah, I'd say sort of it's that five people go camping, not a problem. Ten people go camping, not a problem. But when you get a huge focus of it, and I don't know if yeah, you guys will have seen. But particularly Loch, Loch Morlock takes a huge amount of that visitor pressure. Um, and part of it is because they've got a beach up there um, and it's so so close to the car park. And what, what they've found is that people just swamped that area. Um, and it's it's a good thing for the surrounding area in that sense that it becomes a bit of the sacrificial spot. That's where the pressure is. We can manage the pressure. Um, this, this isn't on our ground, but uh, the National Park can manage that pressure. And it's not sort of spreading further afield. But equally something's going to burst at some point and that that's where i think the conflict between the tourism and the locals come in because you've got these fires that are being lit there's people's homes and livelihoods at threat if if a, if a big wildfire was to take hold but equally you've got to balance that off of that's where the income's coming from that's where the jobs are coming from so it's not it's something you can't just say tourism's terrible we can't we can't have it we can't but you've just got to find a way to work with it and manage it and so again for us that's where the activities really come in, in into their own so Obviously, they make an income for us, but they're entertaining people. So, if you've got two million visitors, well, three hundred fifty thousand visitors coming to to Rothy Mercus, and they've got nothing to do, what are they going to do? But if you've got that those people coming here, and they've got activities to book, they've got good information that they can go and see some history history sites, or they can go, or they're looking for information. I want to go swimming. Where can I go? 
Um, if you can sort of provide that information early doors, um, then it's sort of helping manage that visitor pressure um, a little bit. And then, yeah, it's just sort of a, an, an ever-evolving thing. Um, so I've been here three years altogether, but, uh, but two years in this role. And in those three years, it's been around COVID, which obviously has swayed things, but each year has been different. There's been similarities, but there has been been differences of, of visitor behavior. And so generally speaking for us, when it comes to sort of family, family season, um, which is sort of July and August, you generally don't get too much um, hassle. What, what we found this last year, or the, uh, this year, sorry, was that when we got that really nice spell between sort of April and June, um, that's when we had the really difficult client, clientele on, on site that were refusing to put fires out. And sadly, that's where we have to get the police involved. But one fantastic thing about the National Park is they've got a team of um, their own rangers um, that don't obviously have any commitments to, to, a, to, to a one particular land, landowner. So they can get out and help us manage that pressure. And it's really that sort of... I think it's that value value of of what a ranger does, and I don't think a lot of people know what they do in that sense to value them. But they're the people that are out, sort of, even if it's just having a conversation with somebody in, in a casual way. We can still get messages across of where can you go camping, where can you have a fire or not have a fire, or um, why do you need to keep your dog on a lead, um, things like that. And that that's sort of how how it's really sort of positive that you can sort of manage manage uh, situations like that. But yeah, um, I think the busiest year in fairness we, I've seen was coming out of uh, lockdowns in 2021 and everybody was desperate for a holiday and that was just mental. Just sort of uh, going off on a tangent slightly. But uh, so the, all the Highland beef that we produce on the farm and the and the venison that we produce, whether it's wild or farmed, go through the farm shop and the butcher um, sort of obviously processes that into the various burgers, steaks, sausages, whatnot. And I think he'd made some over 10,000 burgers alone that year. So that was a, an exceedingly busy year. And yeah, there was just people everywhere. And sort of going back to that, sort of if it's five people coming here, 10 people coming here, but it's when you get that huge concentration of people here, that's when you get the problems that sort of are exacerbated um, and sort of made more extreme. So it's not necessarily what they're doing. It's just how many people are here. But equally, I'm very insistent from the number of messes that I've cleaned up that if I find somebody having a uh, number two on the side of a path, I'm going to make them clean it up. <laughs> I've I've tidied up too uh, too many of those messes in the recent few years. <laughs> so yeah, that, that that's a point close to home. And again, I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but um, up at the deer farm, we've got like a, a a nice big turning circle area that we can park vehicles. We can turn a coach round in, and somebody we don't know who. And I hope you're listening. Please don't do it again. But they, they made a, a huge effort to jump the fence and right in the middle of this turning circle, do a number two and leave all the tissue paper. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of where the, the pressures come from for, for us, at least. It's that sort of that mess. It's that uh, the fire side of things. It's that sort of just concentration of people that sort of can can make problems worse. That like obviously one piece of litter is not bad, but 100 make the area look a mess. I live in the Loch Lomond and Crossics National Park and you see kind of communal shovels around like all the kind of high traffic areas for people to dig holes before they go, which I don't know how I feel about. No, it's sort of, I think that's sort of a bit of a, a bit of a plaster on a, on a wound sort of, like it's just a, it's a quick fix and it's, yeah, but it's that, it, it's, it's better than nothing. And it, uh, thankfully, I don't have a dog, but the amount of people you get, like locals, you get complaining that have dogs that either end up going rolling in it or eating it. And it's just, uh, you just don't want to, don't want to be dealing with that. But yeah, it's kind of nature calls and where else are they going to go? 
something I wanted to talk about, and I think you've just covered it when you went off on your tangent there, so it was a relevant tangent, the livestock. You've mentioned the hairy coo safari. Yep. So what types, what other types of livestock are there? So we, um, on, on the farm side of things, so our farm manager, he looks after roughly about 240 crossbreed cattle. Um, and so we're crossbreeding between Shorthorn, Limousin, and Charolais. So yeah, I think we've got about 80 to 90 uh, breeding cattle. And then we've just had a new barn um, finished this last year. Um, so that's allowing us to wean these cattle off and then fan, fan them up indoors for the winter, which we've not had the uh, the luxury of. So our practice up until now is selling those calves off at seven months old to elsewhere to, to be fattened on. So that's sort of a, a bit of investment behind, uh, into the farm now. And so we're able to use some of that beef in the in the in the farm shop if we want, or we can sort of yeah um, sell sell that to to market or wherever. We've got about 120 Highland cattle, give or take, um, and so that's about 45 to 50 breeding Highland cattle, and so those obviously don't need fa- um, to be sort of fanned up indoors. Um, so that's sort of a, a a good thing for us, and what we've sort of always done. On the diversification side of that, obviously, crossbreed cattle are crossbreed cattle. People people want to see cows, but they're not that bothered about a crossbreed. But when it comes to the Highland cattle, this is a huge tick box and a huge bucket list item for a lot of your foreign visitors, particularly your American visitors. We've got a spring and an autumn calving herd. Um, so that's given us, obviously, a supply of beef all the way through the year, but it's also given us cute, cuddly calves all the way through the year for, for people to look at. And so the farm manager, I think, well, he he has the rough end of the stick of look at, looking after all of that. And then we have the nice end of taking visitors to see them and giving them a bit of barley and that, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's sort of a, it's a really sought after resource, if you like, is Highland cattle. And so we, uh, he's, he's forever got a, a, a hell of a problem trying to keep cattle where he needs them to rotate them through fields, keep cattle where we've got them, where we can get coaches and vehicles to keep cattle for the quad bikes because they also uh, sort of want some Highland cattle to get to go and see and then try and keep Highland cattle off the main sort of uh, the main roads because what we find is if you keep them on a, a field on the main road you get sort of 50 well not maybe not 50 60 cars but a lot of cars stopping on the road and causing a traffic jam going looking for them so yeah it's a bit of a, a bit of a thankless job is that so yeah that, that that's the that's the cattle side of things and then we've got a small deer farm so we're probably sat I think anywhere through the year uh, between carbon season and whatnot, we're probably sat between 40 and 100 different times of year. The idea there, again, is that we're using the venison um, from uh, the wild. So we've maybe got, I want to say, about 150 wild red deer across the whole estate. So um, our our stalk has taken uh, visitors out at the sort of uh, in, in the seasons um, to sort of um, cull those animals so obviously it's making us an, in- an income from uh, from the clients coming out it's making us an income from um, selling the meat and then when we've got the demand still and the seasons uh, are over and done with that's where we're coming back into the deer farm to, to harvest from there so yeah that sort of diversification again that we sort of use it as a farm use it as a deer farm um, but then we can also take visitors there um, and obviously a number of other places have got sort of similar setups to that but it's a very popular experience that we do and it works in great with a lot of the coach tours and then sort of um on the sort of the arable side we produce i don't know i, th- I want to say about 100 acres of, of barley um and then silage as well mostly for cattle feed uh, and deer feed and so that's sort of uh, what, what what the what our farm's doing and then 
as we've got the luxury of a lot of a lot of ground, we're sort of renting out, or more so this year, we're renting out a lot of that ground to um, hill far- hill sheep farmers. Um, so we've got a lot of sheep around, uh, sort of escaping <laughs> escaping the fields just now. I think the farmer's tearing his hair out, sort of. Uh, but yeah, so we don't run any sheep, but we've got got a lot of uh, rented ground for that just now. And then one thing that we're looking at. So there's a few of the places that are putting cattle back into the forests, um, like RSPB Abernethy and a few other spots. And that's one thing that we're looking at this coming January, I think, of using these no-fence collars. So I don't know whether we're going to increase herd sizes or just use what we've got, but it's going to be uh, yeah, putting these cattle back into the woodlands as a, as a regeneration benefit, basically. So they'll have a number of benefits of obviously fertilizing, spreading seed around. Um, the highland cattle will probably be pretty good at taking a lot of the heather out where you've got that sort of heather-dominated forest and getting some more bi- uh, diversity of other other species coming through. And then they'll also do that sort of trampling and uh, treading and whatnot of sort of breaking trees and the trees will grow at funny angles, which will be good for insect life and bird life and all this other such stuff. So that's quite an exciting thing that's uh, that's going to be coming up. So I think we're going to trial about 10 cattle to start with and then sort of roll out to a, like some of the other areas of the forest that, that need it. And then um, on the ranger side of things, we're going to be monitoring that regeneration level and uh, grazing level. Um, so that's something that I'm quite looking forward to in fairness of seeing sort of how that works. The Farm Advisory Service, we interviewed the beaver officer at Cairngorms National Park, Jonathan and also Lewis Pate about like the reintroduction. I think it was just potential at this time they were applying for the licences. And I've seen that the licences have been granted. Are they being reintroduced in the estate or is it near to the estate? Yeah, so beavers, um, we've got, uh, well, we don't, we don't know how many. They're calling it a family unit. It could be a pair. It could be a pair with, uh, with young. Um, but yeah, they're going to be reintroduced onto sort of an area of the forest with us um, and then two sort of nearby sites. I think it's been sort of publicised that Wildlands is going to be taking some and RSPB is going to be taking some as well. So it'll all be sort of accessible populations and then providing it's successful, they'll sort of reintroduce a few more next year to sort of bulk up the the genetic uh, side of things and so on and so forth. But yeah, sort of in the near future um, that, that we're going to be seeing them. And from our point of view, um, I think it is exciting. We've not had beavers in here for 400 years. We've got a very managed landscape in terms of our forestry. And even though we're trying to put a lot of our forestry back into sort of natural regeneration and conservation, we're missing that element of the, I think for want of a better word, randomness. We can't replicate what a beaver's going to do cutting down that tree or coppicing or as in we can do bits of it but we can't do it how they would do it and so from a from that point of view they're going to make great wetlands for for fish spawning grounds um improve all the insect life uh, for your pollinators and all that kind of stuff it improves so where you've got the, the the grazing level that's been too high traditionally the trees that these beavers are going to cut down are likely going to be stuff like aspen willow and alder and these ones are going to coppice and sort of regenerate quite quickly so you can have one tree that's going to be chopped down and then come sort of 10 10 stalks on, on one tree type thing and sort of improve the, the sort of the, the, the biomass for one of a better term and then i, th- I think they're just f- from a, a conservation side of things they're, they're, they're going to be fantastic the pressure and the conflicts that have been coming with that, and quite rightly so, is is from from the farmers that have got fields on floodplains, and particularly over areas I think around Nethy Bridge and stuff. Um, so these guys have got some quite expensive uh, irrigation ditches. Um, so when those areas flood, they can sort of walk and get away quite quickly. 
And they're obviously very worried that these beavers are going to start damming things up, burrowing it, burrowing into into banks, and then the river's going to start washing away, and banks can wash away, sort of, sort of stuff. Um, so that's where the pressure is going to come from. But I think on the national park side of things, they've been very proactive on mitigation. Um, so hopefully that'll sort of follow through because they've talked about within like the first two weeks of a of a beaver dam being built, you can you can take it out, and then maybe after that, I think it's you could you might have to apply to, um, to take it out if it's going to become a problem. And then I think they're even talking to the point of translocation and all this kind of stuff. So I think the the, the national park has been pretty proactive and positive on managing this pressure. But yeah, I can understand from the farmer's point of view. Obviously, it's their livelihoods. They've already got enough problems in the in in the realms of prices. Obviously, other other pests and um, predators and that kind of thing, and it's just one more <laughs> one more thing to add to the uh, to the burden list. So, uh, I think for us, we've got such an expanse of ground that it's not gonna it's not gonna be too much of an issue. And hopefully, they'll head head further up into the hills where they'll sort of help slow the slow the water flows. Um, so when we do get big flooding events um, like we had a few months back, it won't be so, quite so damaging. And I think that'll be really positive if that does happen. There is always the, uh, the the negative side of things, and what damage are they going to cause, and are they going to eat, every, eat everybody's turnips and <laughs> all that kind of stuff? But yeah, it'll yet to be seen. But I think the national park have been pretty proactive on sort of uh, mitigation side of things, which is which is really good. Um, it's it'd be a nightmare to have an animal released and then everyone's saying not not my problem, not my fault, sort of thing, and then nothing happens and you just get problems out of it. I I, th- I think exciting for the actual biodiversity and conservation of the, of the ground at least anyway the videos that we produced for the farm advisory service kind of go over all the different kind of management and mitigation approaches and the beaver trust and nature scott provide some good information so i can provide a link in the show notes of this episode just wanted to quickly talk about the fishery that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about as well how many is it just one fishery you've got on the estate yeah, so we've got um, one fishery on the estate, and then we've got about maybe about three and a half, four miles of river spay. So we don't really actively manage that so much for for fishing. So I mean, uh, and what I mean by that is by keeping the the banks clear, partly because the the salmon population just isn't good enough up here for us to sort of keep that going. Um, so as in to sort of fund it, and it's not a bad thing that the trees sort of grow over because it's providing shade for the river, for for breeding fish, for providing food, sort of insects dropping off. So it's not really a bad thing, but it's anybody uh, like myself that's desperate to go fishing can sort of put a pair of waders on and have quite a, quite a good day at it. So that's sort of part of part of the fishery, um, and there's a few sort of locks and stuff on the go as well um, for pike fishing. And then the fishery itself used to be a fish farm maybe about ten years ago, and then for various reasons of sort of our our sort of technology or our setup being um, quite outdated and it being quite a high 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 risk high pressure um, thing to manage uh, with disease. It just sort of uh, f- faded out, and then we just run it as a as a, as a fishing fishery uh, centre. So we've got I don't I don't know how big the ponds are, but we've got uh, two, two well, uh, one's more a lock size, one big lock for sort of fly fishing. So more experienced guys fishing for rainbow trout between about two and about ten pound fish, um, sort of that we that we buy in. And then we've got sort of like a quite a small setup, two small ponds for sort of beginners bait fishing. So this is really easy for for anybody. We can sort of get you going in about five minutes, and it's sort of fishing with sort of stuff like worms, maggots, sweet corn. Um, put it on a hook, on a float, chuck it out, and then the idea is it's nice and easy for 
for beginners to, to get fishing. So anybody that's good at bait fishing would probably be mildly disappointed, but that's not the sort of the, the demographic that we're aiming for with that. It's sort of your, your family market coming here. And one thing on the estate that we always find to be quite a pressure is providing activities for that younger market. So like quad bikes, for example, you've got to be 12 years old or over, um, like the tree zone, which is like a high ropes course. You've got to be yay high. Uh, I don't know how, how tall, but tall enough. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's sort of ticking the box there that we're sort of giving something for, for the younger folk. Um, and I sort of, when, I, when I've got enough enough time over the summer or any time will anytime do, um, I'm out fishing of, of some sorts, whether it's here or elsewhere. But yeah, uh, I've only caught one salmon to date, so I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> Plen- plenty of trout to add to my bow. And then uh, I'm aiming on getting out into some of the hillocks um, a bit further up the estate because um, it's about an eight mile uh, walk or cycle ride up. So it's going to take me a day but um, to get up to some of the some of the hillocks for the small brown trout and Arctic char and stuff like that. I keep aiming for each summer, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it next summer. going to do it next summer. Problem with where where, we, where I will be going is a place called Glen Inuk. It's got hills and mountains all the way around. It's a big wind tunnel. So it's sort of, uh, <laughs> you only get a very fine window to actually go <laughs> wait for a nice day and then just just make a go of it and go and do it that's sort of uh, de- definitely my passion um and it's it's pretty it's pretty good fun particularly sort of taking youngsters um and teaching them fly fishing because it's it's not hard to do but it's quite tricky to learn in in, in the first sort of few times and when you finally get that uh, youngster his first fish or her first fish it's sort of they're really excited and it's actually quite quite a rewarding thing i find uh, yeah it's to, to some people it's always oh, fishing and it's boring but yeah once, you, once you've hooked a fish and it's sort of barreling away from you, it gets quite exciting. Or at least I find it anyway. <laughs> Do you have a lot of competition in terms of osprey coming down to the fishery? Yes. And so that's another diversification we've done. So as you can imagine, we have everything that likes to eat fish in that fishery. <laughs> we've got otters. I think there's mink coming back into there. There's uh, herons, magansas, cormorants. And of course, the osprey. And so, one thing with the osprey is that I don't know how long ago we did this—maybe seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that, if not a bit longer. Came up with a very shallow pond with some hides around this pond, so um, we can at least sort of turn that into a bit of a photography experience. So the idea is the the osprey sort of circles round. And for those that don't know, ospreys um, fish by diving into the water. Um, so it's kind of, they basically uh, circle around. They've got polarized vision to pick fish out in the in the water. Uh, and then it's a case of, yeah, just wings back, um, feet first into the water, grab a fish and then go uh, go uh, flying off. Um, and it is, it is, in fairness, quite a, quite, quite a cool thing to watch. It's sort of, I've done enough guiding days now that it's sort of, uh, it can be quite hard work because it's, it, the, uh, ospreys, uh, I don't know the word for it is, but they, uh, they, they, they feed generally speaking morning and, um, and dusk. So uh, dawn and dusk. So it's uh, getting up at sort of half past three with first light in the middle of June, which is a bit of a, a bit of a mission, but yeah, um, you can get sort of, cause you're only about three, uh, the, 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 the guides that do it are sort of set up on a bank sort of spotting for you. Um, but the actual sort of experience, you're only about probably about four or five meters away from them um and the sort of photographers have got the camera set up and it's this like yeah bird comes in they get the pictures and then yeah quite quite an action shot but yeah at least we're getting something back from there from them pinching our fish (laughs) skiing on the estate how is the snow cover just now are the slopes open don't know actually so start of december um we had a good dump of snow uh down at low level so about 200 meters or so and so that's uh that was getting it going. I don't really want to open this can of worms, but the funiculars closed again, sadly. So we'll maybe just quickly brush over that. I think they got the 
I don't know for a definite, but I think they might have got the, the lower slopes going. Um, and I heard a lot of people were just going off their own backs, so sort of walking up uh, and skiing back down because it was good enough for that. Because we had a, yeah, as I say, we had a covering down to low level, but now it's sort of got a bit mild again. So I think they're probably going to have a hard time for the next few weeks. And it might be January that the, the skiing gets gets going again. We generally find that if the snow is good, there's lots and lots of people here, but they're all up the hill, obviously. And then um, if the snow is bad, often still lots and lots of people up here, but then they're looking for something to do. So that's where we, we sort of benefit if, if the snow is not good, because obviously they're all getting up there early morning and then coming back sort of last thing uh, in, the, in the afternoon slash evening. Although I've never I've not grown up here, just going off sort of stories I've been told, it's definitely not good from sort of past seasons, maybe 10 years ago, where they'd sort of have snow from November to March. It's sort of maybe a few choice weeks in January, February, and yeah, hopefully it's a good season for them because um, that's it. Uh, yeah, again, it's 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 a shame that we're so sort of seasonal in in our income for sort of work wise because um, that's always a challenge that you've got seasonal workers coming in March to October time and then obviously they've got to go elsewhere. But, but if the skiing's good, then you can keep the staff going because um, you've got the income coming in. So yeah, it it would benefit all the businesses if the, if the skiing was good. And the snow is good, but yeah, it's not something that we can uh, we can force, sadly. It's great to know that there's other things for visitors to do if the snow isn't good. There's an ice rink as well in Aviemore, so for, for for us, obviously that's the, another thing to do. But for us, it's something that we've teamed up uh, with one of our groups that we take them curling in the winter. So that's uh, I've got my skills in there now. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting better. But yeah, um, so that's uh, sort of through the summer with this group, we do like a mini Highland Games and then over the winter, uh, we sort of do the, uh, do the curling with them. But again, sort of that used to be quite big. I'm told back in the day when some of these uh, small ponds and locks used to freeze over, uh, a lot of your locals would go would go curling. But again, that's a bit of a, I think, I think a, a by the by now and needing sort of proper facilities for it, which is a bit of a shame, but is what it is. Other, other things to do. That's the, that's the positive note. Yeah, I think that's the takeaway message for this episode is that you're really making use of the natural capital assets that you've got on the estate and there's always something to do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to this episode of Natural Capital. Everything we've talked about we can put in the show notes of the episode. And thanks again, Ollie. Yeah, perfect, no problem. If you want to find out more on everything we've discussed today, you can find links in our show notes and more information is on the Farm Advisory website. You can listen to all of the podcasts we produce for Fast Sounds on all podcast providers or wherever you're listening to this one. If you want to hear more about farming in an upland environment, listen to Thrill of the Hill podcast hosted by Alex Perry. You can also listen back to previous episodes and access a wide variety of other resources on the Fast Sounds page and Farm Advisory Service website. We hope you'll join us in the new year for the next episode of Natural Capital. Thanks for listening. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.